I'm reminded that on Mother's Day last year, we were going through the book of Revelation, and I preached on the mark of the beast. Yeah, that was memorable. Uh, Today, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, a memorable text nonetheless. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. To give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked. And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians And to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us this day. We come to it now in faith. And we ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, would teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us. Help us, O God. Make us more like Jesus. Do what you have promised to work in us through the preaching of the word. To work faith and obedience and Christ-likeness. Do that, O God. Help me, your servant. Would you work in and through me as I preach the word? Would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Growing up, my brother and I often called my mom the queen of hospitality the queen of hospitality. It was most certainly an earned title by her. It didn't matter if it were family, 
if it were friends or even if it were strangers. There was always a seat at our table for them. And there was always a place for them to lie their head. And what made this so amazing is the fact that we didn't have a lot to give. We didn't have a lot of food to give. We didn't have a big house with lots of places to sleep. But that never mattered to mom. It never mattered. You were always welcome in her house. I'll be clear. To her, you were always welcome. If mom was the queen of hospitality, my older brother and I were the princes of grumbling, the princes of complaining. We weren't always happy to give up the extra portion of food. We weren't always happy to sleep on the couch, or I remember at times laying on a sleeping bag in the hallway outside my own room. We weren't happy to do that. And in the minds of these young men, my brother and I were, these people weren't guests in our minds. Expected or unexpected, these people were intruders, trespassers. I look back now and I have to laugh. I have to laugh. I guess Mother's Day is as good a day as any, and I'm sure she'll listen in the future. I'm going to confess that I'm happy to have received the gift of hospitality from my mom. It sunk in somewhere along the way. And though I'll never reach to her heights, she has taught me much. Most importantly, though, I learned from her that the difference between an intruder and a guest is not the method by which they show up. No, it's not about that. It's about the readiness of our own hearts to receive them, whether you expected them to show up or not. It's about your heart and whether you're ready to receive them. This morning, we find Moses... Moses, the man who went from being a prince in Egypt to an uninvited guest himself in the land of Midian, we find this Moses 40 years later going about his ordinary business on an ordinary day. You might remember from chapter 2 last week at the end there that upon arriving in Midian, he rescued the daughters of a priest named Ruel, and in return, Ruel, who is also called Jethro, Jethro invited Moses to stay with him and his family. Eventually, he gives Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, we find that Moses has gone to work. Moses is working in the family business, and he's leading the flock. He's a shepherd. He's leading the flock to graze there on the west side of the wilderness, it says. But Moses' day is about to go from ordinary to extraordinary. And Moses is now going to find himself face to face with a guest unlike any other in all of history. Moses is going to face a divine intruder that has crossed the threshold between heaven and earth to pay him a very unexpected, or perhaps maybe we should say expected, visit to help us understand all that is happening. And there's a lot happening in these 12 verses to help us understand the account before us. You won't be surprised by this, but I've broken the text down into three extraordinary things about God's visit to Moses. Three extraordinary things about God's visit to Moses. The first of these extraordinary things is God's appearance. 
God's appearance. We find this in verses one through six. Now we are told again in verse one that Moses the shepherd, Moses the shepherd comes to a place called Horeb, which is known as the mountain of God. Now this is another name for Sinai, okay? Moses has come to Mount Sinai, which is also Mount Horeb, which is known as the mountain of God. I want to make sure that you know that at this point in Moses' life, we might look upon Moses as what? A tragic failure. It would be normal to look upon him and say, this guy has really messed up. It's been 40 years, right, since he fled Egypt. So how old is he? Do your math, he's 80. Moses is 80 years old now. That's young. Moses is 80. And what's he doing? What's he doing? He's shepherding his father-in-law's flock. He's working for his father-in-law. He Remember, he had a life, 40 years, a life full of so much privilege, so much promise. And now, 40 years after fleeing, what's he doing? He's living the mundane, some would say boring, dirty, to the Egyptians and most of society this day, despicable job of being a shepherd. I often wonder what was going through Moses' mind at this point. Had he just given up? Remember, Stephen told us over in Acts that Moses thought himself to be a rescuer, which is why he went out to see the people. What's he thinking now, 40 years later? Is he wondering if failed? Is he wondering, do I still have this call? Am I still to be a rescuer of God's people? We don't know if that flame of zeal that had once burned in his heart, we don't know if it still burns in his heart or not, but he's about to find himself thrust right back in to that calling, into that role. Verse 2 tells us that the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. God has shown up. God's here. He's come to his mountain and he's come to meet with his man, Moses. The divine has intruded upon the ordinary and Moses' life is about to change forever. What is happening here is what theologians call a theophany. A theophany, that's an appearance, literally an appearance of the divine, a showing up of the divine. The text tells us that it is the angel of the Lord. At first, it says angel of the Lord, doesn't it? But then what does the text do? It goes on throughout all these verses to identify the one speaking as God himself. Calling him, if you look, Lord Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the covenant name for God. We'll get to that next week. Yahweh, it's the covenant name of God, but also it refers to him as God, or Elohim, which was the common name for God. He's speaking. So who's appearing here? Who is here? God himself is here. God has appeared. 
And he is speaking to Moses, perhaps as many have argued, and I am inclined to agree with him, is that this angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate son of God. It's the eternal second person of the divine trinity. This is Jesus himself who appears to Moses. So God shows up. God shows up, and I like how this reads. (laughs) Moses is intrigued, isn't he? He sees this bush, and in this area, this would be a bramble bush. He sees this bramble bush that appears to be on fire, but it's not consumed by the fire. And look what it says in verse 3. I I like this because Moses is kind of writing his own autobiography at this point, right? He's the author of this book. I'll turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. I wonder how many would have had that same response. I wonder how many would have been like, nope, (laughs) right? Not going there. That's too weird. What's happening? What is this? Notice that as soon as he turns aside and it's then when he sees it and starts to head towards it, God calls to him from the bush, just like he had called to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham before with the double name, Moses, Moses. Here I am. And what do you say, right? The bush is talking to me. Yep, right here, that's me. And God says, no, 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 don't come too close. Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. You see, the the transcendent God, the transcendent God has come imminently close to Moses. The divine has intruded upon the profane. God has shown up. And he's inviting Moses to draw near. Come near. Come near to the holy God of the universe. But don't come too close. Oh, and take off your sandals. Because this is holy ground. I can't think of many responses. That doesn't include running away. I can't think of many responses to this appearing of God. But Moses' response seems to be the most appropriate. What does he do? He hides his face. He hides his face and he's afraid. Wouldn't you be? He hides his face and he is afraid. It's important to point out that other faiths have places and things that they regard as holy. And they consider them holy because of their location or their history. But what made Mount Sinai holy in this moment was not its history or its location. It was holy because the holy God was there. The holy God was there. God's holiness is a terrible and frightening thing to behold. What did Joshua do when the commander of the Lord's army appeared to him? And he was told to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground. When God appeared to him, what did he do? He fell down and he worshiped. How did Isaiah respond when he found himself in the throne room of God? And there was God seated on the throne, high and lifted up. What did he do? He cried out, woe is me, condemn me, for I am unclean. He was undone. He was undone. 
How did John react there at the beginning of the book of Revelation when he finds himself there in the face of his friend, but yet his savior, the risen, conquering king of the universe and all his glory there amongst the lampstands of his churches? How does John respond? He falls on his face and he worships. He's frightened. And here Moses responds in the same way. He's afraid. He's terrified. He cannot even look. He takes off his sandals and he stands upon holy ground. And there has to be a pause in the text right there, doesn't there? Imagine. There he stands. Kevin DeYoung, noted author and pastor, talks about this passage and he reminds us that in many cultures, taking off one's shoes upon arrival in a host's home is more than just helping them to keep their floors clean. Doing so is a sign of respect to the host, but it's also an invitation to feel welcomed. It's an invitation to feel welcomed. We, we may not always take our shoes off when we come to someone's home, but don't we often hear our host say something like, hey, take off your shoes, kick up your feet, and stay a while. The point is this, God's holiness has come and Moses is terrified, rightly so. But I want you to notice that God is also graciously welcoming Moses into his presence. Even while that presence and all of its holy splendor means that he has to give him the utmost respect. God is not just the guest here. He's the owner of all things. He's the host. In and of himself, Moses has no right to stand before the holy God. But mercifully, just as that bush is not consumed, that's telling. Because Moses is not consumed either. God's not done with Moses. God's not done with Moses' dream of being a rescuer. God is just getting started God is just getting started. And this brings us then to the second extraordinary thing about this account, and that is God's timing. God's timing. We find this in verses seven through nine. We've established already that Moses was 40 when he fled Egypt and that it has been 40 years since then. So now he's 80. Do you remember how chapter two ended? The very end. We had a focus back on the people of Israel. Look in verse 24 and 25. You'll see these four verbs related to God. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. And now I want you to look at verse seven of chapter three. These verbs come back. God says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God tells Moses, I have come down. I have come down to deliver them. God wants Moses, he wants his people to know that he sees it all. He hears it all and he knows it all. And I also want you to see how he spoke to Moses there in verse six, how he identified himself 
I'm the God of your father. I'm Amram's God. But I'm also the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It may have been a long time, humanly speaking, but God has not forgotten who he is or the promises that he's made to the patriarchs. The very promises I'm sure Moses grew up hearing from his mother. God sees, God hears, God knows, and God remembers. In verse eight, he says that he will indeed bring them up. He's gonna bring them up out of Egypt into Canaan to a land flowing with milk and honey. We know this phrase, right? It's a common name for Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey there is a, a, an English rendering of what might be more accurately translated as fat and sap. So milk, fat, and nectar or sap. Land flowing with milk and honey sounds much better than a land flowing with fat and sap, right? It's a land of fat saps. It just doesn't work. But joking aside, God is saying that he's bringing them out of slavery to a land of abundance, a land of flourishing, the promised land. He's taking them home to Canaan. Well, being the overly emotional human that I am, I'm an absolute sucker for those videos of soldiers when they return home to surprise their children. You all familiar with these? The most recent one I watched at and cried for far too long. Uh, the most recent one I saw was this little boy who was at his martial arts training and his sensei had had him put on uh, a mask, right, a blindfold so that he could uh, practice responding to the sound of his sensei's voice and also the different motions being made by the gi. And so you see this kid, this blindfold on, he's trying so hard to respond and block and hit his sensei. Of course, this is all just a ploy, right? Because what happens? The, the sensei moves aside and dad steps in. Dad's there in his camo fatigues uh, and he starts using his voice talking to his son. And you see the kid kind of stop for a minute and then he goes back at it. Come on, son, that's good, that's good. Right hook, right hook. And then everything just goes to slow motion, right? The kid stops. He grabs his blindfold. He lifts it up. Dad! And then they just like crumble into each other in a pile of tears, right? So much joy. Now you see, I cry at that all the time. So in fact, I just watch them just because I need a refreshing of the eyes, right? Scenes like that are incredibly emotional because they remind us of something true and good. It reminds us of that relief and joy that envelop us when those we love return just as they have promised. And in much the same way, God is now returning to his people. His people have been living in darkness. They've been trying to find their way around without the absence of their father. And now God has shown up in a most unexpected manner, in a most unexpected time. It's now 400 years since they first went down to Egypt. 400 years now. But God has shown up. God hasn't forgotten his people. God has remembered his people. He heard their cries for help. God saw them in their anguish at the hand of their Egyptian taskmasters. 
and he knows them. They are his people and he knows their struggles. So he shows up at just the right time in just the right place and he comes with just the right plan. And that brings us to the third and final extraordinary thing about this account, God's plan. Look with me again as we go to verses 10 through 12. God says, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve or you shall worship God on this mountain. We're gonna come back to these three verses next week as we finish out chapter three. But for today, I want us to focus on the plan that God reveals here to Moses. What does he tell Moses? I'm gonna send you back to Egypt. I'm gonna send you to Pharaoh so that you can bring the people up out of Egypt. See, just as God had not forgotten his people, he had not forgotten about his man, Moses. For 40 years, God was working on him. He was teaching him. He's teaching him to be a shepherd. He's gonna need those skills, isn't he? Most of us know what comes after this. Most of us know what happens after they cross over dry land and the years of wandering. Moses is gonna put to practice a lot of those things he learned as a shepherd. But right now, God's commissioning him. He's calling him. Ordaining him, so to say to be the deliverer. I love Moses' response. I love it. Who, me? Wait, what? Me? No, no. I mean, who can blame him, right? I mean, by most accounts, Moses is not the guy, right? I mean, if you were to survey the landscape, you're like, well, he had his shot and he messed it up. That's not our guy. But God doesn't work by most accounts, does he? God works by his account. He's not looking for the most successful people. He's not looking for the ones who've made their way through life by pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. He's not looking for those who've overcome the odds stacked against them by their own strength and wisdom. He's not looking to the outward appearance of an individual. No, God is looking for the ones who know what it means to be broken. God's looking for the ones who are happy to have the very vessels of their lives cracked. He's happy to have them. You know why? Because if you know what it's like to have the vessel of your life cracked, then you know that when it cracks, that's how the light gets in. You know that's how God does his wonderful restoring work. Those of us who know what it's like to have our jars of clay be cracked and crumbling We know, just as the Apostle Paul knew, that God's power is perfected in our weakness. It's not about us. It's about God. Moses has a while to go to get to that point, and we'll see that next week, right? But for now, we see that God has divinely intruded upon his broken man, and he's happy to tell him that you're the man. And guess what? Here's two things I want you to know. God tells Moses two things that he wants him to keep in mind. First, look what he says. And I think this one in and of itself is is just enough. 
He says, I'll be with you. I will be with you, Moses. My plan includes my presence. You're not going to be alone. I'll be right there with you. That's enough. Not really, is it? I mean, it should be. But before Moses gets a chance, and we'll talk about this next week, he gets to, he gets to throw in his words here a little bit. But before, I want you to keep this in mind as we go into the rest of the text next week, God tells Moses this right up front in an amazing demonstration of God's infinite grace. He says, I'm going to give you a sign, Moses, as well. I'm going to give you a sure sign that you're my man. He tells him plainly, when you brought the people out of Egypt, when it's all said and done, you will serve God on this mountain. You will worship me on this mountain. Here I am, Moses. I'm here on this mountain today, and when you come back here, I'm going to appear to you once again. Those of you who know the story of the Exodus know this is true. So God's plan includes not only presence, but it includes promise. A promise that I'll once again show myself to you, Moses. A wonderful affirmation that the broken and frail rescuer will not have done any of this work on his own, but rather it will only be by God's strength. So Moses may have said, who am I? But God clearly responds to him and says, you're mine. Who am I? You're mine. I'm entrusting my ministry and my message to you, Moses. That is God's wonderful plan for Moses' life. And it's God's wondrous plan to set his people free from their bondage to slavery in Egypt. So I wanna wrap things up today. I wanna do so by making sure that you know that God's plan to use Moses to deliver his people from this slavery is a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of God's ultimate plan to deliver his people from their sin. God's always had a plan to deliver his people. From before the foundation of the world, God planned to send his son Jesus, not just there to Mount Sinai, but to send him to take on flesh and to live and to die, and to rise again for his chosen people. And that's what he did at just the right time. He sent Jesus into the world. The one and only divine intruder, he sent him. He sent him to span the vast chasm that separates us from God. He sent him as both our high priest and our sacrifice for sin, so that the only way that justice could be met is that Christ Jesus would offer himself there on the cross as an atoning sacrifice and make us holy and righteous before God. And then, at just the right time, he sent his spirit into our hearts. While we were wandering around in our own deserts of failure and doubt, the apostle Paul says, while we were dead in our transgressions, transgressions and sin, what did he do? He made us alive. He captured and captivated our hearts. He transformed us from death to life and he set us free from our bondage to sin and death. He took us right out of our Egypt so that we might live for him. And guess what? He still shows up. He still 
shows up. He shows up in the preached word. He shows up in our Bible reading. He shows up in our conversations with friends. And he reminds us, like Moses and so many others, the Holy Spirit of God reminds us that he's calling us to be his witnesses. He's calling you and me to be his ambassadors to a world full of those who are still bound in chains to sin and death. He may not meet us in a burning bush, but he lights the flame of zeal in our hearts by his spirit. Jesus leads us by his spirit to share our lives in the gospel with others who need him. Jesus is still more than happy to take weak and frail people like me, like you, to display the goodness and the glory of his strength and his power to a world that is in so much need of him and his grace. So the question is, how hospitable are we to his call? How open are we to his call? Is his conviction, is his refining presence within us welcomed as a guest? Or is it just tolerated as an intruder? Is his call upon our lives to be his ambassadors? To share our lives in the gospel with others? Is it welcomed as dinner conversation from a guest? Or is it just tireless demands of yet another intruder? Either way, God has certainly used his divine prerogative, his mercy, his grace to show up in your life and in my life. If you claim the name of Christ, he has shown up in an extraordinary way. He saved you. He saved you. That's extraordinary. So I guess that what's left for us is to learn that same lesson that I learned when I was growing up. You remember it? Remember what I learned? My brother and I learned the real difference between an intruder and a guest is not the method by which they show up, but rather the readiness of our own hearts to receive them. Is your heart ready to receive the presence of the Lord Jesus by his spirit in your heart as you hear him call you to a greater zeal and service to him as you hear him call you to lay down your life for the good of others, as you hear him call you to share your lives in the gospel, perhaps you hear him today even calling you to salvation. My prayer is that God, by his grace, would change our hearts and lead us to welcome both his presence and his call as an honored guest. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins? Turn with me there.